Hello, everyone, and welcome to DataFem, where we engage you with stories of how innovators across the globe are using data to achieve new heights in their respective industries. I'm Danielle, founder of Decayo Data, and I'm really excited to have Stephanie Kermer, who is the senior data scientist at Saturn Cloud. You'll hear more about Saturn Cloud mid-episode, as they have kindly sponsored this week's episode. So sit back, enjoy, live tweet, whatever you do. And if you do live tweet this, be sure to use the hashtag datafem. Well, hi, Stephanie. I really appreciate you being here and taking the time to do this episode with me. Your work as a senior data scientist at Saturn Cloud is going to be very interesting to my listeners. So why don't we get started with you telling me a bit about how you got into the data science field and landed in that role? When I was in college, the data science, the, the phrase had not yet been invented. So let's like putting that out there give, it dates me a little bit, but but I think that's true of a lot of people who are in data science now. Actually, uh, we didn't go into our you know college or even necessarily graduate work thinking data science is the industry I want to be in. That's the job I want to have because it wasn't a job that and no one had it. Uh, so I went to grad school for sociology, actually. So I studied medical sociology at Portland State University, um, and I finished my program there in two thousand eight. Great time to be in grad school with no work experience. Super awesome. Yeah. So what I chose to do after that was I took a job at a, a big corporation in here in Chicago um, that was doing uh, analytics for uh, insurance and sort of healthcare, um, specifically for large companies employing lots and lots of people and providing health insurance to those employees. They wanted to you know, sort of monitor and and be uh, conscientious of the uh, the cost burden and the health and productivity burden of of um, medical challenges with their their populations. But of course, there are laws about this sort of thing, and employers can't just look at your medical records. And so they hire a third party consultant to do that for them, and that was what I did. And it was a very valuable experience for me, but it wasn't what I wanted to be doing. Uh, but it did introduce me to the idea that you could just work on data things as a job, and that could just be a thing. I uh, I actually didn't get into data science right then, though. I went off and studied education at DePaul University and worked at DePaul University, helping to uh, serve the needs of the international student population and the and, and to to help support study abroad programs as a project manager kind of role. I kind of worked in wherever I was needed. But one of the things that came out of that was that there were a lot of data collection aspects to that. DePaul is a huge university, you know, 30,000 students, give or take, depending on the year. And the international student population is very large. And there's a lot of students from all over the world coming to DePaul. And they wanted to be sure that those students were getting the support they needed, that the students were, you know, getting the experience that they wanted to get out of college. And so they did 
surveys, you know, student satisfaction surveys, and they kept track of, you know, students' time to graduation and things like that. This is all sort of thing that they call institutional research in the higher education field, and they will, every university under the sun is doing something like this to make sure that they are meeting goals, not just financially or, you know, fundraising goals, but academic goals and making sure that students are having the experience that they want at the college and having a good experience. So I got really into that. And I worked at DePaul for, I think, four years working on different areas of that. And I got really into it. I really, I wasn't in the institutional research office, but I really wished I was because I had so enjoyed working on the data, figuring out the answers to, you know, questions that were being asked by higher management and leadership at the university. You know, how many students do this and how many students have this experience? And it was fun. So... I decided, you know, after I'd been there for, for or quite a while at that point, that I really wanted to transition my career more into a data-focused career. But I still didn't really know data science was a thing. I still kind of wasn't, wasn't, wasn't looped into that world. I knew uh, SPSS, not that useful. I knew a lot of SQL, which was very useful and is still very useful today. So I, I found this role at the University of Chicago at what is called the Consortium on School Research where I took a, a position that was a data liaison, sort of, it was a data analyst role, but it was data liaisoning between the Chicago Public Schools and the University of Chicago. I worked for a bunch of different offices at the University of Chicago, helping them figure out what was the data in the Chicago Public School system all about, where was it kept, how was it organized, what did they have and not have, all these things that you really need to know in order to do education research. But, of course, this is all very sensitive. It's about students who are um, a sensitive population in any circumstances. And they needed to be very conscientious and careful about the handling of that data. So that kind of, I kind of became the, the go-between learning how Chicago's public school system data sets work and how they organize that data. I learned SAS during this time because that's the system that CPS uses. Um, and I learned how to do, like, teach people what, you know, the schema looked like and how to request this data and what fields were there and weren't and to do the sort of EDA to, to know the data so well that I could help other people know it without them ever being able to see it before, you know, paperwork had been done and signatures had been had and so on. It's a long, long pathway there, but that's where I, I finally got into my first data job, really, the, the, the job that led me to where I am today. So I worked at University of Chicago and other offices for a while. I worked at the crime lab, which some people may be familiar with. And then I eventually decided that I was ready. I'd built up some skills. I'd learned about how machine learning worked and, you know, the, the broad strokes. And so I went into industry after that. I moved on to a role at Uptake, which is a startup in Chicago and uh, did predictive analytics on uh, heavy machinery. I, I predicted failures for big diesel locomotives that were shipping freight all across the country. Um, and that was amazing. And I had the most incredible time working on that and learning about that data and really got, it was, it was the best data science like training program I could have possibly asked for because I was just surrounded by amazingly talented colleagues and had so many opportunities to practice the skills of building models and doing exploratory analysis and communicating with customers about data analytics and data science. Um, so I spent two years at Uptake, a little over two years, and then I went to another startup for a little while in travel space. And then I've been at, uh, at, at Saturn Cloud for you know, about a month now, actually. Um, and I 
have uh, have had an interesting path. I've gotten to do a lot of different kinds of data work, but it really was it's slow, incremental, add a little bit of skill set while I'm learning a new, you know, like in each job and like pursue additional responsibilities and additional challenges in each job. And that led me up to where I am now. Um, I studied programming different languages in my spare time. I, I took online courses and R and Python while I was working way back at the University of Chicago days and, and just picked up those skills so that I would be able to more effectively analyze the data for the school district and for the university. Um, I learned R really intensively while I was at Uptake because they did a lot and working in, in R for a lot of their modeling. Um, and then in, at Saturn Cloud, we're a Python shop, of course, because our whole ecosystem is about Python and parallelization of Python. Um, and and I've just continued to be able to, to pick up new skills everywhere I go. And it's one of the things that I love most about this career is the constant learning is not just option an option, but it's mandatory to truly really keep it up. It's so funny hearing you talk about Chicago because I actually went to Northwestern for my undergrad. And we would always travel down to the DePaul area. I believe it's the Fullerton stop. We would travel down there and go to this ridiculous bar called Mad River. Um, sometimes we would start at Belmont and, you know, do the whole Caesars thing, end up at Roscoe's. Yeah, we used to go to this bar called yeah. The Local Option it's in Lincoln Park, all of the education students, because I did my master's in education while I was working at DePaul, and we would always go to The Local Option and, and just hang out. It's like a metal bar, and we were all super nerdy, like, okay. teachers, and it was it was great. It is a great city, and I would love to go back. And I'm also really obsessed with crime data, so I was wondering if you could elaborate on the crime lab experience you said you had. Yeah, I did work with crime data. Um, we my, my projects were primarily in the intersection of sort of juvenile justice issues, so we're looking into how, say, intervention programs for youth in Chicago were affecting both their academic performance and their involvement or hopefully lack of involvement with the criminal justice system. So I, I worked on a couple of projects that we were, we were doing program evaluation of, of you know, tutoring programs and sort of socio-cultural, social-emotional interventions to, to help students um, and I also worked on a project that um, was was meant to sort of get involved in the in the predictive policing space. Um, and I didn't I, my experience with that was not as positive and it was very educational for me to get up front and really up close and personal to see how modeling can be applied in ways that may not be good for the community, actually. Um, and that's something that I've taken away with me. Very had had lots of thoughts about as I've as I've gone along in my in my career. Yeah, I remember teaching myself a lot about R when I was working at the New Orleans Police Department, and I was looking at a lot of open source crime data from the city, and it was just really exciting to merge spreadsheets together and you know see all of the effects that crime has on the population and that demographics have on crime. I'm still doing a lot of research. I haven't come to that many conclusions that I feel like are significant enough to share. But 
I have learned a lot from processing the data. So I'm wondering what your experience was like teaching yourself R. I know everybody has a different experience and there are horror stories and victory stories and I'd love to hear about yours. I feel like I had, I've always been very fortunate in the roles that I've had to be surrounded by really smart people who already know more than I do about whatever it is we're doing. And that's always been true. And I've really, these days I, I've, I've like learned that I should pursue jobs where the someone in that room or hopefully many people in the room are going to know more than me and going to be able to help me in my learning process as I go. And I think that working at the crime lab was, and then working at Uptake were really the ways that, that picking up R really clicked for me because I'm a very hands-on sort of tactile learner. When I read, I can, I have books about R and I've read books about R and I, I have like, like picked up those the, the academic knowledge, I suppose, but until I practice it, until I get right in there and try it out and see if it works or doesn't work, I don't really get it. And so um, I started off, I think my first experiences with R on Kaggle, actually. I was like, I, I kind of understand what machine learning is about. I don't really know. So let's just see what's the beginner data set on Kaggle. Oh, the Titanic. Predict who's going to survive the Titanic's sinking. Okay. And I muddled around, built a little model. It wasn't very good. I didn't like, I wasn't gonna win any awards with this, but it was an opportunity in low stakes setting to actually do it hands-on and to actually see the results of what I was working on. Um, and and I think that has been a huge asset to me. Um, so, so making sure that I don't just passively absorb information, but actively apply it either, you know, and on the side and, you know, the Kaggle world or wherever, or in the workplace, finding jobs where using R can be part of the, part of the whole, like the, the function of my job. It made a huge difference. I would not be as good at working in either R or Python as I am today, if I hadn't done it day in and day out, practicing the skills in well, like a work environment. I totally get that because I had the same experience. I tried at first to learn R in a classroom setting and I was so intimidated and so intent on learning it that I just psyched myself out and I dropped the class and spent the summer teaching it to myself in a more work setting like I mentioned at the police department. And so when I came back, I felt really strong and was the head of the class, but I definitely needed that time to study it on my own terms first because the um, pressure of the just time, um, lack of time really that we had in the classroom during tests was too much for me. Um, and I think a lot of people do like to learn it on their own terms by doing projects, which brings me to my next question. I know that you have a lot of side projects that you engage with, and I'm wondering what your advice is for people who have those projects too, and how do you incorporate those into your life, even with a full-time job? So that's a really good question. So some of those projects are a little old, I'm going to say. So I don't date them on in, intentionally because I don't necessarily do constant maintenance on those projects. And a lot of them were learning experiences that I absorbed during earlier time in my career. People have varying degrees of other responsibilities in their entire lives. And I'm very fortunate that I don't have a ton of extra, you know, you know, family to care for or extraneous responsibilities that I need to, to focus my energy on. But 
people do, and that's a very normal thing and not something that indicates anything about their quality or their skill set. And so, so I have, yeah, I have some, some fun side projects that I've worked on. I did some work in, in previous years for Data for Democracy, which is an organization, you know, giving people opportunities to do data analytics projects for social good and social causes. And I think that they're great if anyone is looking for opportunities to get involved with side hustle kind of things to, to build up their, their portfolio. Um, I also, you know, came up with ideas of my own based on what was interesting to me um, and picked out projects like that. And one of the things that I've really learned and, and sort of sort of feel strongly about is that data science is a tool to solve a problem. It's not a field, it's not an end unto itself. Knowing how to do the data analysis is great, but the whole point of doing it and doing you know, machine learning, predictive analytics, whatever you're gonna call it, is so that you can solve a problem, maybe a business problem, maybe a social problem, maybe just a question that you have and you're curious about. But I think that that the best data scientists get excited about the problem and they get interested in what is the data available about this thing? What can I learn about this thing? What What is there to work with? And then they really want to get to the answer. And that's the, the creative passion that I think is um, what I love about data science. Scaling beyond a laptop for big data usually means trouble. And what about downsampling and reaching internally for resources? That's even more work. But with Saturn Cloud, there are no limits. And I mean that. Saturn Cloud is the data science and machine learning platform meant to help you easily and reliably scale up your Python analytics. You'll rest easy being done with your workloads a hundred times faster, and your teams, as a result, will be that much more collaborative and productive. You'll remember in some of my previous episodes of DataFem, I've talked about Dask's role in scaling Python packages. Saturn Cloud makes parallel processing with Dask super easy when you run Rapids and use GPUs to uptick your speed. And the best part? Individuals and small teams get a free seven-day trial on Saturn Cloud hosted, and it requires no cloud account. You can start your trial today by visiting saturncloud.io. Now back to our show. So I really love what you said about projects and the way that we can use our side projects as not only um, just a means of experimenting to get better at Python or R, or whatever language we're working with, but also as a way of expressing our individual passions and interests and things we want to see change in the world. I love how you highlight on your website that you have a mission of really supporting the LGBT community, the black community, um, fellow women in the fields. And I would love to hear you talk about the work that you're doing to empower underrepresented groups in data science and how we can work along with you to make this a better space for all of us. I honestly don't feel like I deserve a ton of credit. I think I'm doing the bare minimum that any conscientious person should do in this industry or in, you know, in, in any industry. And that's to say that I uh, don't want to be in support of events, organizations, companies that aren't 
making a you know a concerted effort to bring diverse voices into the conversations about data and and about our industry so the 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 gist of it is that if you have a panel and you ask me to participate if i'm the only woman i won't be there that's not a thing i'll do if i am i'm a white person and so if this is a panel where there are no people of color i'm not going to be participating either um and so those are the sort of things that i think are they're they're so so minimal in terms of the uh, sacrifice I'm making. It's really, really minimal. They're almost, you know, there are so many events and so many organizations out there doing in, in, incredibly quality data science programming that don't need to be told this. They don't need to be told you need to have another woman on this panel or you need to have another woman in the speaker pool or you need to have some people of color you know, in the speaker pool. They don't need to be told that. Um, they, you know, already have, you know, keynotes from, you know, LGBT data scientists or whatever. So I feel like I'm not doing all that much, but I do think that it's very important to make that, you know, clear upfront out loud and not to, you know, sort of, um, you know, whisper those things like, well, I'd really rather not, you know, da, da, da. Yeah, it should be, I don't want anyone to have any, um, misconception that I would that I would even consider participating in those events. I had very very I think a very privileged uh, you know entry to data science. I wasn't limited by a lot of barriers based on gender some certainly and there were some setbacks that I had to to, to um, deal with on that grounds but not not nearly what some other folks that I know in the field have had to deal with and so um, yeah, I, I, I think that, that we all need to, to be conscious of the fact that data science as a field is not equal. It's not a meritocracy and we shouldn't pretend that it is. Um, and one of the things that I talked about in my um, talk in 2019 for uh, uh, the Saturday's conference in Chicago in the spring was that we, we set up gatekeeping on our hiring practices, and this is coming out of my data science experience. We set up gatekeeping that we, are, we ostensibly articulate as gender neutral, race neutral, and so on, but which really isn't. And it's not necessarily an intent problem, it's an effect problem. So discriminatory effect is different from a discriminatory intent, but they're both unacceptable. So if you require a PhD in a STEM field to hire a data scientist, you're limiting that hiring field to the individuals who choose to do a PhD in STEM, who can afford to do a PhD in STEM, who choose that to do you know all of the academic preparation that goes into that. And you're expecting that the gatekeeping for PhD programs in STEM is doing your dirty work, discriminatory dirty work for you. And so that gives you, you know, maybe 5% of all of those individuals will be people of color. And you're not, you're, you're not explicitly saying, well, we'd rather not hire a person who's black or Latino, but you are saying we want to choose from a population that is only 5% black or Latino. And that's the part that I find offensive and, and challenge organizations doing their hiring to, to think about. Totally. And I think that a lot of the thinking process is two-pronged. So they have to believe that people from 
underrepresented groups that you or I might belong to, that others belong to, actually have the talent to excel in these fields. Some people are in this arcane mindset that they still believe that we don't have that talent. And then there's also some people who do recognize that we have that talent and fear it. So those people also need to be dealt with because that's just as bad a mindset because the end result is the same and we're kept away from opportunities that we deserve as much as anybody else. I I think that there's there's a lot of folks who have the 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 maybe say the privilege of not having to think about this stuff and it doesn't really enter their regular day-to-day sort of uh you know sort of bubble and so i i hesitate to to necessarily assume negative intent on a lot of people's part i think that there's uh sort of benign neglect maybe on or you know just sort of general neglect of the issue of diversity, um, especially on hiring managers' part. Um, and that means not that those people are actively trying to, you know, avoid uh, hiring a diverse, multicultural, uh, backgrounded, etc. kind of population, but they just don't have to think about it and they'd rather not. And it, it makes their lives a lot easier and a lot more comfortable not to think about it. And so they can they continue to, to sort of just take that as it, as it is and not to criticize or challenge or sort of question that. And so I, yeah, I, I tend to try to see the best in people and, and hope for the best in people. And I think that, uh, you know, I, I assume ignorance rather than malice a lot of times when it comes to the issues of diversity in the workplace. And of course, that's not always the case. And some people, frankly, are just bringing discriminatory and bigoted ideas to the workplace. And those people are out there. But uh, but I think that the people who are avoiding the question because they can are really causing maybe more harm because it's it's sort of subtle and a little bit seductive to the rest of the people in a working environment who may be of, you know, a dominant group or a high, you know, powerful group to just make that an issue that someone else will think about and someone else will worry about. And unless they're pushed and unless they're given real, like, stimulus to no, you have to deal with this, no, I won't be on your panel, no, I won't come to your event, then then they have to think about it. Then they have to really become, you know, more sort of, they have to take a side, get off the fence a little bit. And I hope that that, you know, that the continued effort, uh, you know, on, on my part and on the part of other, other folks like me will at least force them to, you know, get on the right side of, of these issues and, and to be more active rather than sort of passively, you know, standing on the sidelines. Gotcha. Well, when you're looking for whether the organizations that you might or might not partner with are holding themselves accountable to anti-racism and doing it actively fighting against anti-racism, anti-blackness, what are some key signs that you look for when 
you are vetting these companies. Like, we have to know whether or not we can trust a company that we're getting involved with to respect us and create an environment that does support everything that we need in the workplace. I think that a lot of that is folks who have been part of marginalized communities and who have been um, mistreated by our society, they, they learn to look for signals for an organization that's going to value them and that's going to treat them with respect. And if a organization even passively puts out signals that says, we really don't value diversity, we're really not taking this seriously, people can see that. People know that they are uh, you know, valuable candidates with high skills and qualifications, and they're not going to go someplace where they don't perceive themselves as being wanted. And so I think that um, that it's it's best. In, like my my attitude is always to frame this as this is an organization's problem because they are going to be unappealing to candidates who are very talented, who have a lot to offer, and who can really make your organization better. And the candidates don't have a problem. They have many places where they can go and be valued and have and work, but that your organization will suffer based on your neglect of this issue and your inability to get it together. Um, I think that recruitment has, there's a lot of aspects of recruitment that need to be in order for a broad, diverse pool of candidates to be sort of coming into to an organization. And I think that where you post your position is important, how you post your position is important, what you write about what you're posting, what is this job, who are you looking for? If you're envisioning a you know white dude with a PhD in statistics for this position, you're gonna write that without saying as much. And you're going to come across in that job posting as not valuing diverse backgrounds, diverse educational sort of skill sets and things like that. So I'm I'm coming at this you know with some selfishness, right? Because I have a master's in sociology and a master's in education. Neither of those is ever gonna be on the you know official job posting for a data scientist. But I think that those uh, qualifications make me much better as a data scientist, especially in a modern world where data science is, in, is seeping into all kinds of industries, all kinds of workplaces, all kinds of fields of study. And I'm equipped to understand, analyze, and think about what are those organizations all about? What are those industries all about? What are their pain points and what are their needs? Any organization that's not conscientiously recruiting the existing incredible talent among you know, the people who are, are female and women in the workplace, but also LGBT people and also people underrepresented racial minorities, they're just wasting their time and they're not going to be as competitive in the market as the companies that really make this important and really care about. You are absolutely right. If you are not taking steps, real active steps, to make sure that you have representation from all over the talent pool, then you are going to be on the wrong side of history before you know it. Um, you know, maybe now you're not dealing with the consequences as much as we'd like, but you will be on the wrong side of history soon enough and you will become irrelevant. Um, 
And that's why I keep bringing up, you know, the supportive environment, because it's one thing to recruit the token LGBT employee, recruit, you know, the token black engineer or the female executive. But are you really making an effort to make them feel comfortable? Are you really changing your culture to make sure that they stay and want to stay and grow with the company and have a real voice and aren't just filling your quota, you know? Yeah, retention is a huge issue. And it's becoming more of a focus in this modern, you know, sort of sort of space where data science is because we recognize that, you know, the pipeline is important. And it's not that we have a shortage necessarily of women or people of color or LGBT people coming into the field, but that organizations, if you spend the money and the time and the energy to hire somebody to work in your organization, you are wasting that money if you don't make them feel valued and give them leadership opportunities, give them growth opportunities and put them in a place where they can make a difference and really make a contribution. So that, that I think is, you know, table stakes. You have to build an organization where their contributions, uh, you know, not as a woman in data science or as a, you know, person of color in data science, but as a data scientist, their contributions need to be valued and respected just as much as everyone else's. And in a lot of companies, just, just they, as soon as they, you know, sign the hire paperwork, they think done, problem solved, dust, 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 you know, and that's just ridiculous. Um, I also have a, I have a lot of thoughts about the you know area that I think that this has been this has been a topic of interest for a lot of folks lately is sort of uh, employee resource groups or sort of the 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 women at company and your name here uh, organizations and things like that. It is nice to have a space that is for you know people with a shared experience and shared background to come together and to exchange ideas and to have a you know safe space to be but that it also becomes a lot of labor organizing and managing these organizations and these subgroups in the company that is shoved off onto the person who is already struggling to, you know, deal with discriminatory habits and, you know, neglect and this and that and the other. And so um, I, I think a lot of companies, you know, they, they kind of say, well, we'll just have an ERG and that will solve it. And that's not true because that needs... That's a work. That's a that's a lot of work, and it needs to be recognized, and it needs to be treated as valuable, just like you know the work that is on the performance review at the end of the quarter or that kind of thing. Um, and I I have a lot to say to companies that consider this just sort of you know a nice to have a fluffy you know sort of frilly on the edge kind of thing, where they expect, for example, women to organize the women at company x group and then to do all of the extra work to keep that going and then if it doesn't succeed then somehow those women have failed to retain other women when it wasn't their job to do that in the beginning and that wasn't the reason that they were you know there to um to be a part of this organization they're there because they're talented and skilled and have a lot to contribute to your company definitely all good points what is some advice that you have for people listening to this episode about how to advocate for ourselves in these situations? Like, if we feel like we're being put in a box that we don't want to be put into, how do we get out of that box? And what are some tactics to go in knowing? 
in a lot of ways it's hard for me to advise you now because when I got into data science, though it wasn't all that long ago actually, the field was very different. Um, and, and my opportunities coming up in data science were somewhat easier because there was no such thing as a master's in data science or there wasn't already sort of, you know, an academic industrial track trying to feed students into the industry. Think about data science as a tool to solving problems that are interesting to you. Figure out what those problems might be and then look for, for, for you know, working opportunities to, to deal with those problems and to address them. Um, if you're interested in the subject matter that you're working on and getting to apply the fascinating techniques that data science has to offer, then you'll be able to make a satisfying and rewarding career out of it. I, as I've said, am a very tactile learner. I'm an experiential learner, as they say. And that means for me, I sitting in a classroom studying something, you know, on a laptop screen or on paper is not going to get me to feeling confident about my abilities in the same way that hands-on experience will. And so for me, Hands-on experience was what I needed to move my career forward and to get myself ready to go through the grueling job interviews and to demonstrate the skills that are required. If that sounds like you, then you might also feel like you spend time in classes, you take online courses, you study and study and study, and you never quite feel like you're there. And in those cases, and I hear a lot of women especially say this, that I, I just need to take one more class and then I'll be ready. And I need to take one more, you know, I say go for it, go out there because that last step, that last, you know, sort of, you know, learning experience that you really need is doing the thing. And everyone, when they start a new job, even me in this current job, everyone is, feels like they don't quite know what they're doing. They don't have everything that they need to know. And they're trying to learn, you know, learn how to fly the, the plane while they're building it and all of that. Um, and, and you know, avoid letting that keep you from opportunities that are out there. Um, demonstrating your creativity, your passion for solving problems, and your enthusiasm for the work is what will get you the job. Showing that you got, you know, an A minus in, you know, advanced statistics or whatever, nobody cares. Nobody's really looking for that. Because whatever it is you're gonna do in this job, you're gonna apply data science techniques. You need to know, you know, how to do the models and how to write the code and all of that. That's that's absolutely necessary. But the thing that's gonna that, that's gonna get you the job is I can show this person what weird thing we do, how we do it, and they're gonna pick it up and they're gonna run with it and they're gonna be excited about this job. Because what you're gonna do, you're gonna start the job and you're gonna be faced with a whole bunch of stuff you've never done before and you don't know anything about. Every job is like that, at least in my experience, data science or otherwise. It's all gonna be a little bit new. There's always something they're like, thinking in the job interview process and in the, you know, the writing the job description process, they're thinking, can we teach someone this bit? Yeah, we can teach them that. Most of the job is we're gonna have to teach them that and that's okay. Well, Stephanie, thank you. Thank you so much for engaging in all of these topics with me. I really appreciate everything you had to say. And I think that I, along with, I'm assuming my listeners are left with a lot of things to think about in terms of how we can go forward in our work as data scientists and also part of the larger tech ecosystem. 
If you liked this episode, as I'm sure you did, please feel free to support future DataFem episodes by going to patreon.com slash datafem and signing up for one of the tiers. There are a lot of fun perks coming up once I get a chance to breathe. <laughs> but I really, really look forward to engaging with you all, hopefully at Black in Data Week, which is November 16th to the 21st, and on Twitter, as usual, at Data.